Y'all sounded great. <laughs> My name is Christine Nicodemus, and I'm a member of the Bojangles Coliseum Community Group. This morning, I'm going to be reading from Mark, verses 8 to 27 through 9 1. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing that his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is the word of the Lord. My name is Josh Kim. I'm an assistant pastor here at Christ Central Church. We're glad that you could join us in person as well as online. Um, I know with the, the restrictions easing a little bit more and more, um, we hope to see many more of you. And we thank you also for um, keeping your mask on. I know that uh, it, it can be cumbersome. Uh, we are hoping to get to a place where we cannot have, and we don't wear masks and all this stuff, but um, we are following our healthcare committee, a uh, group of us that are working in the healthcare um, field that are advising us as we think about what it means to not only to love God, but love others as well. And that's the heart behind all this. So thank you again for abiding by it, worshiping with us in that. And, uh, you know, as uh, uh, Mr. G reminded us, um, persevering uh, through this past year as well. We're continuing our sermon series in Gospel of Mark, and we are in a pivotal moment of this book as now the second part, second half of Mark, the gospel, is beginning, Jesus answered this, asked this question to the disciples. It centers around the verse 29, but who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? And perhaps more than any other question the gospel throws at us, this question sums up what it means to follow the king, to follow this Christ, Discipleship, as we talk about in church, 
is all about. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is for you? Because based upon your answer to that question, it determines who you are following, let alone what you are following and why you are following to begin with. It answers the question, why are you here today? Not only talking about the church building, but in this earth and what God has called you to be. And there have been and there are still many, many attempts throughout the history trying to answer this question. Some would say Christ is an embellished figure, a moral teacher, philosopher, philanthropist, a significant figure at that throughout the history, not to mention the popular depictions throughout the, the social media as well as the popular culture today, such as Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, Jesus seminars, and various religious classes. And I think about many of our graduates that will be going forth from here into the world as we're reminded again into places where this question of who Christ is will come to the forefront. And I'm not just talking about classrooms, but out in the working places to your neighbors. All this conversation that you may have, the answer to the question who Christ is, is something that we must wrestle within our hearts. And perhaps some of us even here in this building, in this place, we never quite answered the question. Perhaps our experience with Christianity, our experience with Christ is so tied down with our tradition, our culture, even to your God-loving parent. But the question that all of us have to answer is, who is Christ to us? Who do you say Christ is? Who does he mean to you, and who are you following this morning? And one of the most famous responses to this question is credited to C.S. Lewis, a British writer and philosopher, where he writes in his book, Mere Christianity, Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, <coughs> however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. He's credited with this trilemma, uh, often quoted by a lot of other people as well, but he's often credited with that. And that's the outline I want to invite us to follow as we journey through this gospel narrative to answer this question, who do you say Christ is? Who do you say Jesus is to you? And he answers C.S. Lewis that he is either liar or lunatic or the Lord. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. First thing we see is the answer, Jesus is a liar. And that's the claim that some will make. Mark 8, 27 begins by saying, Jesus went on his way with disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on his way, he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Perhaps using the technique that often we use with our children to say, who do other people say I am? To draw out the answer, to get to the point, and eventually going to ask the question, who do you say I am? In verse 28, the day, disciples told him, John the Baptist, the others say Elijah, the other is one of the prophets. And he asked them this question, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ, one of the greatest confessions here. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about it. Here in verse 26, in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus has most intimate moment with his disciples to the date. 
and he asked this question, who do you say I am? And Peter, Apostle Peter, often who speaks first and acts after, or who acts first and often goes out of his way to speak, says, you are the Christ. Literally meaning the anointed one. Because in the Old Testament, throughout Christ's time, the kings were traditionally anointed with oil as a kind of coronation. The Christos, the word here, Peter's confession, comes to mean the anointed one, the promised one, the prophesied one, the one in whom all the promises of the Old Testament is fulfilled, the one the Israelites, like Peter, was trained from early on to look forward to, saying, you are that person that I've been taught to wait for. You are that person where all these promises that I read about, I long for, not only know intellectually, but in my heart, long for is all wrapped up in, you are the Christ. And the question is, how does Peter know this this morning? Yes, he's a disciple, after all. He's a follower. But we see that he actually speaks more than he knows because in a parallel text in Matthew 16, this is what Christ says after Peter replies, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answers him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Barjona means son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus himself also tells Peter not to tell others and the disciples because they have not yet fully understood what they were prophesying, what they were, what they were proclaiming, because the discipleship must continue on. The question is, is this truth? What Peter testifies to. Is Christ, is Jesus truly the Christ, the promised one, the Messiah, the Son of the living God? And in order for us to discern whether he's truly the one, the Christ, the prophesied one, or he's a liar, is to look at disciples of the Bible, the Old Testament, who Christ was meant to be. After all, disciples had to look into the Old Testament, all the learnings, to look forward to the Christ that was to come, right? So in the Old Testament, Christ is promised seed through whom all the nations, including the Gentiles, we blessed according to Genesis chapter 12. He's the one in the line of Judah, Genesis 49. He's the son of man whose house will be built forever, 2 Samuel 7. He's Emmanuel, born of virgin, God with us, Isaiah 7. He's a perfect sacrifice, a lamb who takes away the sins of the world, Psalm 40. He has power to open blind eyes, open the ears of the deaf, authority and power over nature, according to Isaiah 35. Church, We've been walking through Gospel of Mark together for past eight chapters. What have we seen thus far? What has disciples seen thus far? Here is Christ, the king who overcomes the temptation in the wilderness in chapter 1, one who heals a man with unclean spirit, a leper, a paralytic man with the withered hands. Here is the one who calms the raging seas, not once but twice, who is able to even raise a child who is dead with the simple commands, Talitha Kumi, Furthermore, he's the one who feeds not only 5,000, but 4,000 as well, not just physically, but spiritually. Here is the king who fulfilled thus far all the prophecies that talked about him in the Old Testament. According to Josh McDowell, there are over 300 references to prophecy concerning Messiah, and Christ Jesus fulfills every single one of them. Here, Peter and the disciples have witnessed and will continue to witness this king who fulfills that promise, 
the Christ, the promised one, the Messiah. But you know what? All the more so than that, we know that Christ is not liar, not a liar, because the greatest testimony about who Christ is is right here today. The Church of Christ. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, in response to the confession of Peter, this is what Christ tells him. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, not talking about Peter, but the confession, the testimony he makes, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Church, you and I are the church built on this proclamation, who Christ is, the church is the greatest testimony that Jesus, in fact, is not a liar. In fact, that we live to testify to the truth of Christ, that he himself will continue to build his kingdom through church of Christ. Church, I know that many of us have been hurt by the church in the past. Every church that I've been to, every single church I've been to is a mess. You know why? Because I'm in it. I'm part of it. Do you know that? Every church that you're going to go into the future, even now, Christ Central Church is going to be a mess. You know why? You're in it. We're all in this together. If a church is perfect, if you walk into a church, there's no sinners abounding in the place, you're in the wrong place. That's not a church. That's, a, that's probably a cult you're going to. Every church has to be filled with sinners in need of grace of God. Every church ought to be a place where not only Christ followers are present, but non-Christ followers must be present because they want to see how Christ can work with this group of people that are messed up. How can they have hope? That's what church is all about. A few years ago, I was preaching through the book of Ephesians, and it was a particularly very difficult season for me and the church. There was a lot of infighting that was happening in my own pastoral journey, I was really wrestling with my call, wondering, am I in the right place? Has God really called me to this? And I got to chapter 3 of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, and I read this according to Apostle Paul speaking to the church. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And it says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, and we love this verse, don't we? I think this is verse that we often quote. Then all that we ask or think according to power at work within us. And I love this verse 21. To him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You know what this verse reminded me of? I was reminded that despite the messiness of the church, despite its failures and sin that is abundant, abounding more, perhaps you find so much more at church than out there. God is not done with the church. With all the messiness, all the brokenness, yes, we need to do better. Our church needs to do better. If we have hurt you as a church, I'm sorry. 
We need to do better. We need to reflect the beauty of Christ better. But look at this. Despite our brokenness, God is not done with us yet. Christ is still going to work in our lives. Church is not a building. It is not a program. It is us. Messed up people in need of God to work in our lives. That's how he, the king, is going to do the work in us. Church is not about you and I, what kind of program that we are part of. It is about what Christ is doing in and through us. And despite our failures, he's going to continue to testify that he is the anointed one. He's not a liar, church. He's a promised one. That's the reason why we gather. You know what that means? Stick with us. Stick with the church, the messed up people. Bring your mess. We all need it. Be uncomfortable together as we long for Christ to work. We're all work in progress, looking forward to the kingdom that is to come. That is the church. That is the testimony. God will build it. Jesus is not a liar. May he continue to build the church of Christ upon the testimony that he can, he is able, he is a way maker. Not only do we see that Jesus is not a liar, second claim that people make is, is he a lunatic? Jesus is a lunatic. Verse 31 says, And he began to teach them that son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, right, very clearly, right, so you could get it. Say, do you know this? Let me tell you very clearly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. By turning and seeing his disciple, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Well, the critics of Jesus often say he's a lunatic because he's disillusioned to think that he's narcissistic. He thinks he's more important than he is, right? He is an important person. Yeah, I get that, but he was, was he really indeed a promised one? But perhaps the disciples are thinking that he's a lunatic in different sense. Not because he's not the anointed one, because what kind of anointed one says, I'm going to die? Right? Even after this great confession, after they have seen this work, think about it. You got Christ on your, uh, Jesus on your side. You don't have to worry about food. He's going to feed, feed you. You don't have to worry about popularity. He's got the crowd. Now, all he has to do is start to say, okay, let's go. We got this. You with me? Let's get this done, right? And they're all waiting, and they're all arguing about, hey, I'm going to be on your right side. I'm going to be on the left side. I'm going to get this kingdom. Man, give me a spot in this awesome kingdom that you're going to bring. We're going to be victorious. We're going to win at all costs. And guess what Jesus says? I'm going to die. I'm going to leave you behind. And this is what he's going to do. He must suffer. He must die. He says, Son of Man, again, reference to Daniel 7, the promised king in the line of David, so that they understand who's going to die, the anointed one that was promised. All that fulfillment of the promise is here. But not only does he fulfill the promise of all the power and authority, but he also references to a suffering servant in the prophet Isaiah chapters 43, 44, and 53. What he's saying is, I, as a Christ, the anointed one, must die. Jesus uses the word must here to indicate that he's planning to die. And he's going to do it voluntarily. 
He's not merely predicting this, well, this might happen. He's saying this must happen. This is the reason why I came. Here's a suffering servant, the king, whose purpose was to come to die as promised and prophesied, as John the baptizer cried out, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And how does he do that? By heading to the cross for our sin upon his shoulders so he could die for it, so we could be redeemed, bought back by the price he pays on the cross. And through the death of Christ, we are now truly freed, bought at a price to live for the Lord. Oftentimes, we think about freedom, association, Christianity. We think about doing whatever we want. But if you truly understand what Christ meant by a suffering servant who's going to give up his life to buy you back at a price, if you realize the extent of atonement, extent of love that he goes for you to buy you back, you realize this freedom comes with a cost for our Creator. And when that happens, you realize he is not a lunatic, but he is the Lord who is ever so passionate about us, who loves us, who is willing to come to suffer. We talked about church being a messy, messy place. You and I, this Lord comes and says, I want that. I need you to come to me because I want that. I'm able to take that upon my shoulder. I must go to the cross. Church, he's not a lunatic. He's our king, our Lord that we need at the church of Christ. And final thing we see is not only he's not a liar, he's not a lunatic. If then, he must be the Lord. Verse 34 says, And calling the crowd to him with disciples, he said to them, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever saves his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after he has come with power. And then we come to this final question as we talked about. Is he... The Lord then, if he's not lying, if he's not a lunatic, if he's truly God, the anointed one, is he the Lord? And if your answer this morning is absolutely, as we saw upon evidence upon evidence, and as you sit amongst the evidence of God, then what is our response to the fact that he is the Lord? Our response ought to be, follow him with a cross on your back. It is not saying the cross on your back is what saves you. It is not saying as if you could earn your place in his family. The cross you carry is rather the mark that you have already received the king who is not a liar or not a lunatic, but the true Lord. You have received his love and you are now receiving his call to follow after him. And you know what he's saying? He's saying it is so worth it, so worth it to follow the king like him, better than anything in this world to the point where you are willing to take the cross on your back 
to follow after him because our Lord is not after worldly things, but it is after, he's after your soul. He's after your eternity. That's why he says, what does it gain a man if he gains the whole world, but forfeits his soul, elevating the importance of your eternity at hand. So what is the cross you and I are called to bear? Following Christ is not an easy thing, uncomfortable yet challenging thing as well. Again, if Christian life is so comfortable and so easy for you, right, then perhaps you have to wonder, why am I, what, what am I fighting? Is there things in my life am I not overcoming? I'm not saying you should always feel uncomfortable, always hate following after Christ. That's not what I'm saying. But as we see from the scripture, you are going to be consistently fighting against the remnants of sin. Not just you, but also others and in the world around you. It will make you feel uncomfortable again because God is not done with you yet. Because God loves you, he's going to continue to sanctify you and continue to help you to grow. That's who God is. So when Christ followers are gathered in a place like this, it's going to be messy. We got our sin to deal with. And God is going to, again, show us our need. Our cross is going to be heavy, but he's going to deal with that. And here's a grace in all this. When he is our Lord, you can't help but to follow him. And that's what disciples did, didn't they? As they seen this Lord who walked with them. But not only Christ says, I'm the one that fulfills all these promises, but I'm going to go die on the cross for you and for all those who follow me, and I'm going to rise again. And the call to discipleship begins, and have, they have witnessed him walking, reaching out to those who are in the fringes, loving those who are in need, healing not only physically, but spiritually. We also saw this Lord take the cross on his way to Calvary. We, they saw the Lord who was crucified despite all the authority and power at his hand. And they saw this Lord rise again. And when their fingers went through the holes of his hands, when they saw the risen Lord dying with them and given authority in the spirit, this timid, arguing, falsely rebuking disciples became preachers, the testifiers of the gospel, proclaiming the goodness of Christ with their literal crosses. Many of them gave their life for the testimony that Jesus is not a liar, not a lunatic, but he indeed is the Lord. Howard Thurman writes, one who follows Jesus will choose whether to do the things that is to him or to her the maximum exposure to the love and therefore to the approval of God rather than the things that will save his or her own skin. Church, I want you to use your gospel, uh, gospel imagination this morning. Imagine with me this morning, using your imagination. They say the criminals, the ones who are convicted in their wrongdoing, of their sins are given this horizontal beam called patibulum. And the history has it, the wooden beam that is horizontal is tied to your shoulder. 
Every criminal is, give, criminal is given this patibulum, and you are to carry this on your back, on your shoulders, to feel the whole weight of your sin. And you are to carry this towards your execution place. The weight bearing down the heat of the day, beaming on your body that's been, that's been flocked, spit at, everyone along the way pointing fingers, saying, shame, shame, guilty, all your failures, brokenness, nakedness, open for all to see. Each step is a reminder that you are broken, that you deserve this. And as you walk towards the hills of Calvary, walking the path that your Savior has walked, and when you get to the top of the hill, from the distance, you see the vertical beam that's ready, made for you, where you will be hung for your sin. But as you get closer and closer and closer, you see someone else is already up there. Someone took your spot. Someone is hanging on the tree. And as you get to the hill of the Calvary, they take the patibulum off your back because he is the Lord who is hung up for your sin. And you cannot help but to lay and praise the Savior who took your place on the cross. Church, the beauty of the gospel is that this is not a standalone story at that. Sometimes when we get to chapter 8 like this, and then the question is asked, and we feel like that too, don't we not? Who do you say Christ is? And you're thinking, man, I got to have the right answer. I got to know the right thing. But what we see is how he walks with us. He draws that confession out of us. He draws that he's the Lord out of us. I got an inspiration from this somewhere, but I forgot where. But oftentimes this is what I do with my son when I put him down for the night. It is routine for me to ask these questions at night before he goes to sleep. I turn to my son and I say, who loves you? He says, God, I say, thank you, Mr. Aaron McFadden. Praise the Lord for you. You know, in many ways, thank you for discipling our children well. And now I ask him again, who else loves you? He says, Daddy, yes. Who else loves you? Mommy, yes. And we go through all the relatives at the time. And the final two questions I ask, who are you? He would say, puppy. Or said, my son. And our final question I would say is, who am I? He will say, silly, my daddy. Silly because I am. And I hope forever that he will never forget that I am, in fact, his daddy. Church, the disciples are working, walking with Christ in the Gospel of Mark. And as he walks with them time and time again, he draws out this confession. Who am I to you? Who am I to you? It's not up to you to decide to say he's the Lord, but he's going to show it, die for it, 
rise again so that your confession can be drawn out to say, yes, Abba, Father, you are my Lord. That's the call of discipleship this morning. Not a liar, not a lunatic, but our Lord. Let's pray. Let's pray with me, church. Pray that there will be our confession this morning as we witness the beauty of the gospel, the great love for the Lord, the one who hangs up on the cross for yours and my sin. Father, we thank you for your grace. The Lord, that despite our messiness, our brokenness, especially in a place like our church, that you do not give up on us. Lord, we come with our brokenness, our flaws, and the place that we need to be at, you are already there. Father, may we learn what it means to respond, to carry our own cross, to follow the path of our Savior. For Lord, whoever follows him will gain eternal life in the Christ, the Son, who has died for our sin. May that be our testimony, confession of our church from now and forevermore. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.